Welcome to the six o'clock. Give yourselves a hand. You made it. So, uh, <laughs> you know, more than anything, you helped us open up seats uh, in the morning time. So thanks for thanks for coming tonight. And uh, we're going to talk about the resurrection. One of my favorite New Testament scholars, uh, N.T. Wright, says on Easter Sunday, I mean, really, just bag the thing and serve champagne because this is like this is the day. You don't really care about that, okay? Uh, but I mean, this is the day that we should celebrate. There's not a whole lot to say, although I have some things to say, but there's not a whole lot to say other than, right, I mean, we're here because of uh, the resurrection, so we'll talk about that a little bit tonight. Are you ready? Um, as you know, Jesus, he died by crucifixion. And if you know much about crucifixion, it was a criminal's death. That's how Rome would deal with murderers. That's how they would deal with uh, people who committed treason, which is kind of uh, how they got Jesus onto the cross Uh, To begin with, it's how they dealt with theft or anything else that they felt like was a threat uh, to them. And as you can imagine, crucifixion was uh, was a humiliating way to die. The normal mode of death on the cross was simply that you hung there until you were nothing left but bones. They didn't really take you down off the cross ever. And uh, so they would just let you hang there until you were nothing but bones. And then Rome would take the bones and throw them in the city dump. There was no proper burial for criminals, not by crucifixion. You died slowly, you died in a very humiliating way, and the rest of the the town recognized that as they watched you deteriorate to nothing. Unless you had a friend or someone had an inroad with the system, and or you had enough money, you could pay Rome or you could convince them to let you have the body of your friend or your family member and then you could give them a proper burial. And so unless you had that, otherwise you would just hang there until you were nothing left but bones. But if you had an inroad with the system, you could talk the officials into giving you the body of your friend or your family member, and you could give them a proper burial. And this is exactly what happened to Jesus. I mean, when they took Jesus off the cross, that was pretty abnormal. Uh, John tells us how this happened, at least in his gospel. If we look on the screen here, it says this. After these things, after his death, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, John says, I'll talk about that in a minute. He asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So this is how Jesus came down off the cross. Now, Joseph was a pretty wealthy man. He also served on this council known as the Sanhedrin. It was one of the uh, the Jewish ruling classes of the day. He rode the fence between state and faith. He worked both for his Jewish community, but also for Rome. And so he had an inroad. He had some influence. He also had some money. And so he could go in and see Pilate, which is what he did. And Pilate agreed. And Joseph, along with this other man named Nicodemus, who appeared early in John's gospel, I don't know if you know that name or not, they picked up the bill for Jesus's funeral. So this is how Jesus ended up in a tomb in the first place. Otherwise, he would have just hung there like the rest of those who were criminals. But he ended up getting a proper funeral because this man named Joseph and his friend Nicodemus fit the bill. And so this took some courage because Jesus essentially was crucified uh, in Rome's opinion because of treason. They came to him with these kind of trumped up treasonous charges or statements that Jesus had made. And that was the only loophole that got him on the cross because the Jewish community had no uh, legal right to execute anybody. And so this took some courage on Joseph's part to even mention that he would like to take care of the body of Jesus, but Pilate let him. And John tells us that they laid the body, I think this is so interesting, they laid the body in a tomb, the first one they could find that wasn't taken. 
So it's not like if somebody owned the tomb or whatever, they just found the first one and they buried him in haste because the Sabbath was approaching and so they had to stop all work. And so they simply said, this one will do and they put him in there and then they sealed it up and then that was the end of the day. Now, after someone was buried, you as a family or a group of friends simply just waited around. There was a seven day mourning period. Interestingly enough, on the third day, it was customary to go back to the grave. And so you would sit around and wait for, tw- uh, for seven days. You would go through this mourning period with friends and family where you sat around and you reflected, you remembered, you offered encouragement and hope. And the body would remain in the tomb, not forever. It would, re- it would remain there until it was just bones. And then the bones would be gathered and they would be put into a box called an ossuary, which looks like this. And then that box would be given to the family for them to have. And then the tomb would then be empty and ready for use again. Excavations in that part of the world are extraordinary because they find caves full of these boxes. You know, 10, 20 boxes in a cave. Usually the name of the deceased inscribed on the side. And so this was kind of the the way Jesus ended up in a tomb in the first place. Now John tells us what happens next in verse 1 of chapter 20. He says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still what? Just making sure you're awake here. Why it was still dark. Now Jesus again was buried in haste right before the Sabbath began. And so Mary, two days later, heads back to the tomb to perhaps finish up all the burial preparations that they had started before the Sabbath began. But John, if you look on the screen, also gives us this emotional tone to the whole story when he wrote the words while it was still dark. And of course it was so dark it was early, the sun hadn't come up, but John, always always attentive to the details of his writing, includes this phrase about darkness. And all through John's gospel, in fact it begins with this uh, vision of darkness versus light. And John always uses the word dark or darkness to describe disbelief, confusion, or uncertainty. And Mary hadn't only lost a friend, I mean, her friend Jesus died, but she had also lost her Lord, and also she had lost someone who uh, she and the others, the disciples, believed to be the Messiah. And so her friend died, but also, in her mind, her Lord and her Messiah had died. And it wasn't in the cards. That's not what they were thinking. I mean, not yet, at least. It was just too fresh. So darkness is this key uh, picture for us in terms of what had settled over the lives of Mary and the other women and all the other disciples. Just this sense of confusion and uh, doubt and disbelief and uncertainty. Darkness had settled in in their lives. And it's in that that she runs to the tomb, still sort of trying to figure out what has happened to Uh, all of them, and and particularly what has happened to Jesus at this point. And this is exactly the place where the disciples were as well. Once Jesus was arrested, it's very interesting, Mark says this uh, in his gospel account, and they all left and fled. They all left him. Like when he was arrested, they just ran. It's like a middle school playground fight, and the teacher shows up, and everybody runs. Like, so here's the commitment level of the disciples right there on the screen. This is late in the game, by the way. They've seen Jesus heal people. They've seen Jesus walk on the water. They've heard Jesus teach. They've said to him, we'll die with you. And then they arrest him, and they run away. So there's your commitment level that the disciples had at this point. I mean, this is how they reacted when Jesus was arrested. 
They, and the thing is, they all knew how these messianic movements would end. Jesus wasn't the only one to call himself the Messiah in those days. Josephus, the late first century historian who lived in the late first century, calls out by name no less than 13 would-be messiahs in the days of Jesus and surrounding. People who started these messianic movements, and they all knew, I mean, the disciples of Jesus knew how these messianic movements ended. They always ended in the death of the leader, and in many cases, the death of those who followed him. So what you see on the screen is kind of a natural reaction to that fear. They just ran. They fled. They were gripped with fear, so they ran away. Peter, one of Jesus' chief disciples, one of his greatest students, would this very night that Jesus was arrested on deny that he even knew him. He would just deny that he even knew Jesus at all, simply to stay out of trouble. And so when Jesus was arrested, he was done for. As far as they were concerned, that was the end of it, and they left. Even when he was being crucified, notice what Luke says about it. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Like they're not even up close, they're just standing back. You get the feeling that for these people, all was lost. Jesus was gone. Now there was a tradition within these messianic movements to capture the brother of the dead leader and make him the new leader. But nobody went looking for James, the brother of Jesus. Nobody. Partly because James didn't even believe in his brother until after the resurrection. And so they didn't even look for a replacement for Jesus. No one pushed anyone into Jesus' place. When Jesus died on the cross, his movement came to a sudden stop. It's very extraordinary. And so this is what had happened uh, prior to the crucifixion, during the crucifixion, and then they went through this, you know, weekend of just sitting around and wondering what they were going to do next. And on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, Mary runs to the tomb. Notice what it says next in our story. And Mary saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved... That's John, by the way. So John's writing this story, and he labels himself as the one Jesus loved. So there you go. That's how John felt about himself. Uh, And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, the first thing Mary noticed when she got to the tomb, and you probably know this story, is that the stone had been moved and that the grave was empty, that the body was missing. So she ran back to tell the others what she had seen. Now, I want you to look at the screen And I want you to sort of answer this question in your mind. Like, do you notice what she does not say? Because what she doesn't say is so important tonight. Do you notice what she doesn't mention? Do you see what's missing from her story? Now, don't miss this. The most incredible piece of this story is the absence of any hope or notion that Jesus had come back from the dead. It's not there. The first thing that crossed Mary's mind wasn't resurrection, wasn't some great miracle, it was theft. Someone had taken Jesus. I mean, this is what she says, like, so I went to see Jesus, and somebody took him. That was the only explanation in her mind. In fact, it's one of, it's one of the top five leading arguments against the resurrection still today. It's simply that someone stole the body. And so this was the only explanation for her, and since grave robbing in those days was pretty common, then her conclusion was quite logical. 
Now, you need to know this about the disciples. And please catch this in case you didn't know this prior to tonight. The idea of the resurrection, the idea that Jesus would come back from the dead, never crossed their minds. It actually never entered their minds. Like, for example, when they, when they uh, buried Jesus in the tomb, nobody hung up like a countdown clock. Like, nobody knew that was going to happen. There, nobody sat around grinning, thinking, well, we know the end. It's no big deal. Everybody just chill. Let's have some dinner. It's all going to be okay. Like, nobody thought that. In fact, there was no such anticipation of a resurrection from these men and women. They were all just sitting around quite shocked that everything had ended so quickly, and they were wondering what they were going to do with the rest of their lives if they made it to next week. Resurrection was never in the cards. It's a silly idea, if you think about it. Now, Jesus would first appear after his resurrection to the women. And that's a story in and of itself, which we'll touch on a little bit in a minute. And when the women went back to tell the disciples about this, again, resurrection wasn't in the cards. When they heard the women say, oh, we, f- we found him, he's alive, they thought the women were crazy. Notice what Luke says about this. Now, it was Mary, Magdalene, and Joanna, the mother, the Mary, the mother of, I just said a bunch of names there. It was Mary, Magdalene, it's been a long day, and Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they, what? They did not believe them. Like, there, there, are, re- there are actual reasons why they didn't believe them. The first is, it's silly. That's silly. The second is, they were women. They did not believe women because they were women. Because, see, in the ancient world, particularly in this part of the world, in the Jewish community, a woman had no right to even speak in court because their word was not considered trustworthy. Actors and women, not trustworthy in the ancient world. They weren't even allowed to hold a spot in court. They were simply considered hysterical. Uh, A later philosopher, a couple of centuries after these events, would say about Christianity, he made fun of Christianity, his name is Celsus, he would make fun of Christianity and simply say, it's crazy, it's not believable, because the source of their main story came first from women. Now, these aren't my words, by the way. I've got a lovely wife and a pretty daughter. But I'm just saying, like, this was the cultural narrative of the day. Like, women don't have any right to sort of say any of these sorts of things, and anybody believe them. Now, what's interesting is that all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all include the stories of the first people being uh, appeared to by the resurrected Jesus being the women, and they were also the first to tell the news to the disciples that Jesus had raised. I mean... If you're going to start a religion in the first century in Palestine, you're not going to do it using women as your primary catalyst for the story. And so it's, in other words, there's this whole side story about, well, maybe there's something to this because all four men decided that they would include as the beginning of this movement the testimony of women without concern for the culture and what they would think. But simply, they came to the men and said, we saw this, and they thought they were crazy. They thought it was silly. 
Now, just as an aside, kind of as a timeout, like just be really, really encouraged because the very disciples and closest friends of Jesus thought that the news of the resurrection was ridiculous. I mean, within the Jewish community, there was a generalized anticipation of a resurrection of sorts, but it would be kind of at the end of time. Like, resurrection was something reserved for the end of time, but it would be a widespread thing that would take place in the future. But for one person to come back from the dead on his own was nothing but a fairy tale, or at best, simply a foreign idea. It was not even talked about. Paul, who later wrote most of the New Testament, ended up in this incredible conversation in Athens, the city of Athens, between himself and uh, the, the leaders of the philosophical think tank of the day, the Areopagus, and he's debating with them and talking about this resurrection uh, to them and talking about Jesus and how he rose from the dead. And it says that some of them just laughed at him, some of them gnashed their teeth at him, and some of them uh, believed him. But notice what they say. It says, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus. Now watch this, and the resurrection. The Greek word there is the word anastasin. comes from the word anastasius, which where we get the word anesthesia. If you're an anesthesiologist, you're raising someone from an apparent death. And this, in the ancient mind, was ridiculous. No one comes back from the dead. They didn't even understand it. I mean, these are, these are the minds of the day in Athens. They didn't even get it. They just thought it was a, like a proper name. Oh, it's Jesus and some other god named Anastasin. Name Resurrection. And so this is kind of how the world viewed the idea of someone coming back from the dead. It was silly. And yet the women came to the disciples, they told them, and they didn't believe them. And I love that the whole thing began not with conviction or belief or acceptance, but with doubt. Like it wasn't assurance that had the first word in the story of the Jesus movement when it came to the resurrection. It was skepticism. Like for these men and women, and I want you to like really think about this tonight, for these men and women, their journey towards the empty tomb did not begin with faith, but it began with disbelief and uncertainty. Like they didn't come back and say, oh, we found him, it's no big deal, he rose from the dead. And the disciples didn't say, oh, exactly, that's what we thought would happen. They didn't believe him. And their run to the tomb was out of disbelief and uncertainty, not out of joy or excitement. And I think that's kind of how we all begin this journey. We all run to the story of the resurrection, not with great faith, not with blind faith, but rather with a lot of good questions, some really hard questions. Resurrection forces us to ask hard questions. It asks us to confront our greatest fears and doubts and confusions about who God is. It it forces us to really consider these things. And that's a good thing. Doubt is a good thing. Joan Chatister says it this way, doubt is the mother of conviction. Once we have pursued our doubts to the dust, she says, we forge a stronger, not a weaker belief system. These truths are true, we know, because they are now true for us rather than simply for someone else. It is doubt that is the beginning of real faith. This is why in the church, someone is a child has great faith. They know all the songs. They know all the answers to the Sunday school lessons. They know all the Bible verses. And then they go to college, and you think, oh my gosh, they're not going to survive, right? And then they go through this period of just 
you know, waywardness, doubt, that while it was still dark, I mean, just that kind of life for a while. And then they're forced back to these questions about what does the resurrection mean? Is any of this true? And then they begin to doubt all that they were ever taught. And we say a lot here, that's a really good place to be because it's there that you will forge a stronger, not a weaker faith. And so it was with the disciples. With great doubt and confusion, they ran to the tomb to see for themselves. John goes on in the story to say, the, then the other disciple, this is John again referring to himself, who had reached the tomb first. So not only is he the disciple Jesus loved, he's the fastest disciple. I mean, this is what John is saying. Like, he's old when he writes this. He's very, very old. So he's, you know, he's like, oh, I used to be fast. Jesus loved me the most, and I could outrun Peter. So this is sort of the thing, right? Also went into the tomb, and he saw, and he believed. So this is sort of a short version of what you know to be the story, but they eventually came to believe this. Now, Jesus would soon, he would eventually appear to all of them, something we'll talk about next week, actually. And he would hang out with them for several weeks. It would be like a mind-blowing experience for these men and women, obviously. And it would be one that would change the world forever. But one of the things that the disciples had to wrestle with, because again, they weren't expecting this, and it's something we have to wrestle with too, and it's simply the question, so why the resurrection? I mean, what's the, what's the point of the resurrection? I mean, if it's true, that's great. That's really cool. But, like, why, why do you have to do that? Like, why was it necessary? What does it mean? What does it say to us? What is the meaning and the message of the resurrection? These are good questions. And I think the disciples wrestled with these, too, again, because it totally wasn't in the cards. And so they're having to come to grips with this, too. Like, why, why did Jesus have to come back from the dead? So... On one slide, I'm going to give you 2,000 years of theology. Are you ready? I, I condensed it to one slide for you, okay? So it goes like this. There's really four things that we know about resurrection. One, and this is fairly obvious. You could de- deduct this on your own, but it, it simply says to us that death is not the end, right? Now, that would be an amen moment, so let me just try that again. Death is not the end, right? Amen. There you go. So this is, this is like the first most obvious thing about resurrection okay if jesus comes back okay cool then death isn't the end like we don't go to sleep and that's it right and so death doesn't have the last word again back to paul who wrote most of the new testament he would have this kind of conversation with death in one of his letters to the corinthian church that we have in our bible and he would ask death where is your sting like such a great question like the death has no more power because of the resurrection and so this is kind of an obvious thing about resurrection is that death doesn't have the last word death doesn't have the final say and that if christ can come back from the dead and perhaps we can experience that as well the other thing that became a great uh, thought line and thought process in the scriptures is that the renewal of all things is where history is going and this is one of the messages of the resurrection it's a little more complicated but this is kind of what's happening with the resurrection, it reminded the disciples, it reminds us that, uh, that the renewal of all things is where history is going. This is, in fact, how the Bible begins. If you know the first creation story, the seven-day thing, it's simply this story about how God takes something that's in total chaos and he ends 
and Sabbath. So it's like it begins with chaos, it ends in Sabbath. He recreates, he makes the world his own, he makes the world good, all these sorts of things. And it begins with just utter chaos and it ends in rest. And it really sets the tone for the whole biblical story. That this is what God is doing in the world. In fact, in Revelation chapter 20, uh, Jesus is quoted as saying, Behold, I am making all things new. So the whole story is about the renewal of all things. Right? Spiritual, physical, relational, ecological, all of it. That God is renewing all things. And the resurrection uh, for the disciples and for us, and it's all through the scriptures, teaches us that. It also said to them that that renewal is underway. It's now underway. It's begun. Like it's not later. It's not something in the future. It's happening now. And fourthly, that we can be a part of that. We can be a part of that now, not later. And so when the writers of the New Testament wrote all of this stuff down decades later, like Jesus didn't rise from the dead and they all went together and said, we've got to write this down. It would be decades before they would ever even think about writing this stuff down. And when they did that, They explained how it was that Jesus' resurrection meant all these things that you see on the screen. But before any of that, like before they did any of that, the resurrection, and this is so simple, the resurrection simply for them validated everything that their friend Jesus had said or done in his lifetime. I mean, that was just the first and that was the first thing for them. That the resurrection forced the disciples backwards into this place where they had to reinterpret everything that they had experienced with Jesus. Like everything that he had said, everything that he had done, everyone that he had been with. The resurrection forced them to reinterpret and reframe everything about that. And the resurrection for the disciples solidified everything that Jesus said or did. Because remember, if you're familiar with the biblical story, if you're familiar with the gospel story, The disciples didn't always believe everything Jesus said either. There was a lot of times that they disagreed with him. They didn't buy it. They had issue with it. There were things that Jesus did that they didn't like. There were places that Jesus would go that they didn't think he should go. But the resurrection forced them to come to terms with all of their opinions and expectations about who Jesus was and all about the things that he said as well. I mean, it wasn't like the Sermon on the Mount or those teachings about being salt or light, or uh, a teaching on this or that about prayer and fasting or serving others and loving people, or anything else that Jesus ever said to them that propelled them forward as a movement. None of that really... I mean, if you, a good case can be made that if it weren't for the resurrection, most of what Jesus said may or may not have even made it out of the first century. It's, it's just not, in and of itself, the only thing. It's all, um, there are things that Jesus said, he said a lot of great things, there are things that we, there, there are things that we should listen to and apply to our lives, but we do so in light of the resurrection. It wasn't just what Jesus said that forged the movement that we now call the church, it was an event that took place that did that. Because again, most of what he said may or may not have been even uh, remembered past the first or second century if it had not been for the resurrection. Like we don't get together in this room every Sunday because, of, because only of some things that Jesus said. 
We're here because of something that happened. We're here because of something Jesus did. The first church wasn't formed out of a doctrine or a specific theology or even a particular teaching of Jesus. There's no central teaching to the first church. There is a central event to the first church. The first church was formed out of the event of the resurrection. And the resurrection is what forced them backwards to start re-examining everything that Jesus said. And when you read everything that Jesus said in light of what would happen through the resurrection, then it takes on an authoritative life of its own. And the first church was a resurrection community. So a recap. Jesus dies on a cross with criminals. Had it not been for Joseph, who had money and position and power, Jesus would have hung, hung on the cross until he was bones like every other criminal and thrown into the trash. But Joseph convinces Pilate to give him the body of Jesus, and he gives him a proper burial. Two days later, after the Sabbath had ended, Mary goes back to finish all of the burial preparations because they had to bury him in haste. And when she arrives, she notices that the stone is missing and the body is gone. And her first thought is not, oh, cool, he's alive. Her first thought is that he had been stolen. So she goes back to the disciples and said, they've stolen Jesus. Somebody's taken him and we don't know where he is. And then they, Jesus appears to the women. And the women go back to the disciples and go, scratch that, he's alive. And they think they're crazy. But they at least go and check for themselves. And the disciple whom Jesus loved, and also the one who was faster than Peter, sees first and he believes. And at this point, everything changes for them. Everything about the world, everything about how they uh, re-examine everything that Jesus said, everything about their futures changed at this moment. And to this day, half the earth is circling around the event of the resurrection and drawing great hope for it. John would later write uh, three letters in the back of our Bible. They're very short. You could read them before you went to bed tonight. But in the first letter, he uh, begins saying this. So we'll put the, the, the last verse on the screen for you so you can see where we're going. It says, and we write, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. But you'll know what that means in a moment. This is how he begins the letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, which is this phrase for Jesus. Now that's just verse one. And in verse one, what you're hearing John say is, I need to tell you about something that we saw. I need to tell you about something that we touched. It's not just something we believed or heard, but it's also something that we saw with our own eyes. And it concerns the word of life and he goes on to say, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we write these things so that our joy may be complete. What John means here is that he wants everyone to trust in what he and the others saw. 
not just what they believed, because remember at first they didn't believe it. It's a great way to start a movement, by the way. Everybody didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. It's what they saw. And he saw it, and he wants us to know that they're not making this stuff up. There's a passage later in 1 Corinthians 15. It's actually the oldest resurrection passage in the Bible. You think the Jesus stories are written first, but they're actually written last. It's the rest of the Bible that's written first. It's really crazy. Uh, that's free tonight. All right. But in the 1 Corinthians 15 text, the oldest text about resurrection, Paul says this. If the resurrection didn't happen, then all of this is just silly. That what we're doing here tonight means nothing. And he says that we are to be pitied above all people. Because all of it is a joke. And the thing about John, John is the only disciple that died of old age. The rest died a martyr's death. And it would just seem crazy to me that they would die for a joke. And it seems crazy to me that they would die over something that wasn't true. And so John begins this letter saying, I want you to listen to what I'm going to tell you because it's about something that we saw. It's something that we experienced. We touched it with our own hands. And because it really happened, and that it's not a joke, that there is hope beyond all hopes, and that all is not lost, and that God is renewing all things, beginning with our lives, and we can believe that, we can trust that, and we can live as a resurrected people. This is what John is saying, and the resurrection story is an incredible story because it reminds us that, of all those things, death isn't the end, that the renewal of all things is where the world is going and that that renewal has begun and that we can take a part in that today and not later. Joan Chatister says it this way, and we'll close with this before communion. On Christmas morning, we find the manger full of life. And on Easter morning, we find the tomb empty of what? Death. This whole journey in the church here began at Christmas. And it ends here with this whole new beginning. The absence of death in the tomb equals life in the world. So I'm going to pray and then we'll take communion together and then sing a couple of songs before we uh, end tonight. And so after I pray, you can make your way to one of the four tables around the room. Uh, Take the bread and the juice there or you can bring it back to your seat. Uh, The racks in front of you under the seats have little communion cup holders. We're really proud of those because they're they're new seats. We're so happy about the communion cup holders. So uh, you can put it there and uh, or you can take it at the table. It's up to you. So let me pray for you and then we can do that together. God, thank you for the story of the resurrection. Thank you that um, it's, it's very similar to our stories, like we hear about it and we don't believe it. And I thank you for the transparency of the writers of this, these stories, the writers of the scriptures. They didn't get together and make sure it was perfect and airtight. Instead, they just left all the truth in there. That someone said you had raised from the dead and that nobody bought it. And there was this rush to figure things out. And at some point, uh, you appeared to them and you hung out with them and this changed everything. And we're like in this room tonight because of that. We're, we're here tonight. We're going to take communion in just a minute because of the resurrection. And we join the church is the world over in this tradition where we take the bread and the juice and it reminds us of your life and your death and your resurrection and the hope of your return. 
Thank you for this weekend. Thank you for all that it has meant. Thank you for the season of Lent that we have now finished. And we move into a new season, this Easter season, one that is full of joy and hope. But tonight, Father, I just pray that you speak to us these words of encouragement, that death is not the end, and that renewal is happening, and that is where everything is headed, and that we can be a part of that now. I thank you for the baptisms tonight that just symbolize that, that new life. And we just celebrate with them as we take communion uh, together. And it's in your name we pray. And everyone said...